Most of you would not have any way of knowing that I have a past as a politician. Uh, When I was in high school, I ran for office. I ran for class treasurer for both my junior and senior class. Going into my junior year, at the end of my sophomore year, I realized that nobody was holding the office of treasurer, so I decided to throw my name in the ring. Had I known at the time that that meant that I was responsible for planning class reunions for the rest of time, I might not have put my name in the ring. Uh, But I saw uh, this opportunity to hold a position. Well, it turns out that about five other people saw the same opening and put their names in. So I ran in this five or six way race for class treasurer at the end of my sophomore year. And I invested in this process. I worked with friends for hours to make campaign signs, to draw them by hand or print them on our dot matrix printer so that we could paste them all over the walls of the school. Uh, My campaign platform for class treasurer was that I was going to raise more money than anybody else so that we could have a better prom than any other school in our area. Of course, that was everybody's campaign platform because that's the only thing the treasurer did in high school was try to raise money for prom. Uh, My nickname was Matt More Money Morton. That was what I put on my signs that we pasted on the wall. You vote for Matt More Money Morton. Now, uh, I did win actually that year. And so I was class treasurer my junior year and then I ran again and I was class treasurer my senior year. Uh, And uh, what I learned from that process is something that some of you know, politics can be tough. Running in a campaign can be ugly and difficult and hard and it strains relationships. Even watching politics from a distance is rough. And uh, many of us have seen that firsthand this year as our nation has been engaged in a presidential campaign that is uglier than certainly any I have ever seen. And people older than me tell me it's uglier than anything they have ever seen. And despite my vast political experience, I find myself at times confused and frustrated, even tempted toward despair. As I wonder, what is happening to our country? What sort of values are going to drive the next generation? What sort of leader are we going to have in office? And much like you, I find myself at times going, none of the options look particularly good right now. And so it's stressful and people argue and people fight. And as Philip said earlier, relationships are strained because we feel all of this tension about what's going to happen in two days. And some of the questions that come to our minds are questions like these. How am I, as a citizen of heaven, who also lives as a citizen of an earthly kingdom, how do I relate to the political process? What is my role as a dual citizen? Uh, When I think about voting, how do I prioritize the very significant issues and problems that face our country? How do I bring the gospel to bear on the issues of our day and vote in a way that is wise and reflects Jesus Christ? Especially, how do I do that when none of the options seem to fully represent the way of Jesus Christ? And so we struggle with those types of questions. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we want to just lay a little bit of groundwork 
for what the scripture has to say on the topic of God and the government. How does God interact with the government? How do we as God's people interact with the government? And now what I'm about to say next, uh, some of you will like and some of you may not like, but here it is. Uh, I'm not going to tell you for whom to vote. I'm not going to tell you, you go cast your vote for a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or this particular party. That's not what we do at Grace. And we'll talk about that in a while. Why do we not stand up and say that a particular political party or candidate is the one that deserves and demands your allegiance? There is a reason for that biblically. So I'm not going to tell you for whom to vote. What we will do is say, what does the Word of God say about God's attitude toward the nations and the kings and the governments of the world? And then how do we, with the limited authority we've been given by God, how do we use that authority and responsibility wisely and then trust God with the results? I think there are two errors we could fall into over the next several days and weeks. Uh, One is panic as we see what happens. Uh, No matter which side of the political spectrum you find yourself on, you might be tempted to panic to say, if the right person doesn't get into office or the right set of congressmen and senators or the right people on the Supreme Court, I will panic because my nation is crumbling and the people of God have no place in this nation and how will we worship and how will we give hope to the next generation? And so we spread panic and division and chaos chaos and fear. That's one danger we face. But the other danger we face, I think, is equally as bad, and that is fatalism. To simply throw up our hands and say, in the face of so many big problems, there's just nothing that I can do. So I'm going to go take a long nap until Wednesday and pray this is all over. But what we'll see is that God has delegated to us a very limited degree of responsibility in this world. And we are held accountable by God for how we use that responsibility. At the same time, we recognize God submits to no earthly kingdom because God is in control. So we don't have to panic. And that's what we'll see as we walk through the scripture. So as we, as we look at these principles this morning, those are the two errors we want to avoid. One is fatalism, the other is panic. And we'll see how the, the scripture addresses both and maybe try to find a way forward for us as we seek to be citizens of heaven and citizens of earth simultaneously. First thing I want to point out from the scripture this morning is this, that God sits, let me see if this is on, there we go. God sits above our politics. God sits above our politics. And what I mean is this, that you and I certainly sit right in the midst of our politics, don't we? We live in a country in the year 2016. And to us, the problems look enormous. The issues look enormous. But God sits above all of that. And what you see scripturally is that uh, God is the only one that sees around corners. God is the only one that sees the future. The only one that knows what is best for us for our nation, and for the course of history. Not only does he know what's best, but he controls the course of history. Only he does. And our influence is so small, and yet we stress about it way out of proportion with the reality of the influence that we have. Look for a moment at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times 
and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. In other words, Daniel says only God knows what happens in the darkness. Only God knows those things that are hidden. Only God knows the future. Only God knows what will be the consequences of one leader or another. We think we know. We like to think we know what is best. Only God truly knows. And Daniel says, in light of that knowledge, God plucks up some kings. He puts other kings in place. He uproots nations and he plants nations. And hundreds of nations throughout the course of history have risen and have fallen at God's command. God is in control and we are not. Now, when Daniel wrote this, the king under which Daniel was living was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And you remember that the Jewish people, because of their disobedience to God, had seen Jerusalem itself destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar's troops marched in and they exiled Daniel and his friends to Babylon, where he was called to serve a pagan, bloodthirsty king. There was no chance that Daniel was going to put out a yard sign that said, re-elect Nebi for king in 660 BC or whenever, 560 BC. Because Nebuchadnezzar was evil. And yet what you see is Daniel acknowledges, despite his evil, God is arranging history. And God can put kings in place and remove kings and put new kings in place without ever endorsing what they do. Because God submits to no king. God is not a part of any political party. God sits above our politics despite the conspiring of the nations and the jockeying for position that happens in our world in the political process. Psalm chapter 2, one of the most powerful psalms about nations and rulers and kings, the psalmist puts it this way, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 2 is widely recognized as a messianic psalm. That is, God is talking about the king who will come, the Messiah, who is Jesus. And as all the nations elbow for space and jockey for position, God watches it in heaven. And then he just bursts out laughing. And he says, they think they're in charge. Guess what? My king will reign over all the nations forever. And then Psalm 2 goes on to say, Kings of the earth, be warned, you do homage to the Son. Every king of every nation, willingly or not, their knees will hit the ground in worship of Jesus Christ. And so the scripture says, God sits above our politics and he controls the scope of the nations. And in the grand scheme of eternity, What we are experiencing is one year or four years in the life of one nation through the course of history that involves a small group of people. God's kingdom is international. It is eternal. It is not bound by space or time. Our kingdoms are 
temporary and geographically isolated and very bound by space and time. And so we do not call God to be a part of what we're doing. Instead, we decide, will I stand on God's side? And what God calls us to do as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ. I was thinking this week about a guy I knew in junior high. His name was Brad. And maybe your junior high had a guy like Brad. Brad was the coolest guy in junior high. He was tall. He was handsome. He was strong. He just was cool. He just had it. He dressed right. And uh, I don't know about you, but in junior high, every day at the lunch table, there was sort of a fighting for position. Everybody wanted to sit as close as they could to the coolest kids possible so that some of that coolest coolness would sort of reflect back onto you if you sat close. So everybody would kind of elbow and nudge and try to get close to the cool kids. But what Brad would do was Brad would sit alone and wait for others to come sit with Brad because Brad knew that he was the coolest. You didn't invite Brad to your table. You decided if you were going to join Brad's. Now, in reality, Brad was kind of an arrogant jerk, right? Because Brad (laughs) thought he was more important than he actually was. But as we look at the scripture, we see, no, God is actually more important than we ever can realize. And so God stands apart from the nations and he says, I will not join your agenda and your plans for your nation in 2016. Instead, you ask the question, men and women of faith, will you join what I am doing? Because I am writing a story that is so much bigger in the United States in 2016. Many of you have heard this story, but Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War was was asked, do you believe God is on the side of the Union? And I, I think Abraham Lincoln could have made a good case that God was, that their cause was just, that it was right, that the values they fought for were the values of God. But Abraham Lincoln very famously said this, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. So we submit first and foremost to God. Incidentally, this is why as a church we do not endorse political candidates or parties. This is why we will not stand up and say one party or candidate represents the way of Jesus Christ. Because when we come into this place to worship him, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ alone. And long after the United States fades away from the international scene, the church of Jesus Christ will stand. And so we come together in recognition that we worship Jesus Christ in coordination and agreement with men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every nation and people who have worshipped Jesus Christ from the beginning of the church until now, who will worship him until Jesus returns. So we do not come in here and demand allegiance to a politician. We demand allegiance to Jesus Christ alone because he is the king. And so God writes the story. And our task is to say, how do I align my life, my thinking, my values, and my trust in him? That prevents us from panic. No matter who wins on Tuesday, God is writing the story of history. He will be no less sovereign on Wednesday morning than he is today on Sunday. 
Because right under the nose of the Roman Empire, which was believed to be all-seeing and all-knowing, right under their nose, God established his own king who died and rose again and will one day establish his kingdom and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. So you don't have to panic because God sits above our politics. But we also can avoid fatalism Because we recognize that although God sits above our politics, he also cares about the government. And the reason is because the government, of course, is composed of people. And the government is tasked with a responsibility, perhaps a limited responsibility. But nonetheless, God has given people power over the lives of other people. And we sit in a unique situation in the United States because we're in a democratic republic. And so because of that, we are both governed, right? We have leaders we submit to, but in some sense, we're also the government because we vote and we choose our leaders. And so we have a responsibility to submit to the government appropriately, but we also have a limited responsibility to be a part of selecting our governmental leaders, And I think for us, this is uh, the source of the stress many of us feel because we say, you know what, I've got a vote to cast and I want to be faithful and wise with that vote, but I don't exactly know how to do that. And so we're going to look for a bit at some of God's values when he thinks about government and then ask the question, how can we simply be faithful with the limited scope of responsibility God has given us while not panicking? How can we do our best and then trust in God? And let me offer this, when we think about the government biblically, at its best, what the government is, it is an organization to enforce justice for those who have been injured or wronged or killed or stolen from. It is an organization at its best that reflects the moral values of God's character. It's an organization at its best that punishes evil and rewards what is right. That's what Paul will say in Romans chapter 13. Government or the authority of the government is a minister of God to you for good. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That's what the government ought to do, how it ought to function. Here's how you can think about it. Uh, Everybody in this room has a sin nature. Everybody in the world has a sin nature. Uh, Left to our own devices, uh, we will try to take from others. We might try to harm others to get what we want. Uh, If you are honest in this room, you would probably admit that if you believe you won't get caught, you will drive a little faster, won't you? Even if you think that it might be dangerous to do so. Uh, Many, if we believe we would not get caught, might pay a little less than we should on our taxes. Because we're sinful. And so the government functions in a sense as an external accountability. The best governments recognize that people are sinful and place boundaries in place and punishments in place for those who transgress those boundaries. I read 
a couple of weeks ago about a study that was done in a university where they got a bunch of volunteers uh, together and they put them in a classroom, volunteers ranging from college age up all the way to middle age and older. They put them in a classroom together and they had them work some math problems. Now, they were high school level matrices types of problems that some of you remember doing in high school. Uh, Some of you, you already kind of feel your heart rate going up and you're starting to sweat when I mention these problems. And they'd say, okay, here's 20 matrices questions. You have however long, you've got 30 minutes to answer these 20 questions. And everybody would sit down, they'd do their best. And then at the end of the time limit, they would self-score. So the teacher would call out the answers. You would score your own test. And based on how many you got right, you would get paid for every answer you got correct. The payment varied from a dollar to $10 for every correct answer. So you would line up in a line and you would go up to a table where you would report your results. But before you reported your results, instead of handing in your paper, uh, the volunteers were instructed to shred the paper. They'd put the paper into a shredder and then report how many they got right, collect their cash, and leave. Now what the volunteers didn't know was that the shredder was rigged so that the researchers could go back later and pull it out and see how many they actually got right versus how many they said they got right. Some 70 or 80% cheated, at least just a little bit, because they knew they wouldn't get caught. Few people cheated a lot. A few people stole 20, 30, $40. Most people cheated a little, just enough that they could still walk away and kind of feel not too bad about themselves. Uh, But what they found was without that external accountability, the amount that the small cheaters stole uh, was a ton more in the aggregate than the amount that the big cheaters stole. Because apart from accountability, all of us are tempted to use what authority, position, responsibility we have for our own benefit instead of that of our neighbor. So at its best, what the government does is it provides that accountability. It creates laws to keep us from hurting one another and our society and then enforces those laws. But the reality is we all know that the government quite often is unjust, isn't it? Because the people in the government are also people with a sin nature. And in fact, uh, as a country... We say, you know what, in the aggregate, as a big group, 300 plus million people, uh, we mitigate the damage of the government because all 300 million of us have the opportunity to pick good leaders. And how's that worked? Okay, because the problem is that 300 million people can be just as corrupt as one. And so the government can be unjust. And so as you walk through Scripture, you will see God at times lay out what are his values for the government and what injustice merits the harshest punishment from God. And so I want to look for just a moment as we think about voting and as we think about biblical values for government, where does the Scripture take us? Let me offer a few principles. Let's let's look at a couple of passages first. Psalm chapter 82 How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Book of Exodus. God says, you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. 
You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger. For you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's Exodus chapter 23. As you look at these passages, these are representative of some of the values God lays out in the Old Testament. There's a couple of critical values. One is that the government protects life and punishes those who take the life of the innocent. God cares about justice for the weak and the needy. This is why uh, we, we condemn the practice of abortion and we condemn a government that sanctions abortion as a wicked government. The reason is because uh, there is a group of young people who have no voice. And God would say, you rescue the weak and the needy. You deliver, deliver the life of the innocent. But we also see that God cares that the poor and the needy have access to justice, and that matters to God. That everybody under the law, when they go into the court system or they stand before law enforcement, everybody is treated on an equal playing field and given an opportunity for justice. That to take advantage of the weak and the small, to take advantage of the immigrant or the stranger is sinful and unjust. And as you look throughout the scripture, life and justice consistently rank at the top of God's priorities for the government. I was thinking this week about uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab is one of the most wicked kings in the history of the nation of Israel. All right, if we want to say that a ruler is wicked, we call them a Jezebel. That's how bad they were. And as you look at their reign, there were a couple of things for which they were judged. One was their idolatry. They worshipped the idols of the Canaanites. And in fact, they were engaged in idolatry that involved the slaughter of innocent children. They sacrificed babies to the gods of the Canaanites. But there's something else as you look at the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. And it it is this, as you look at their story in 1 Kings 21, you see a, a particular instance where Ahab looks next door to his palace and he sees this field belonging to a guy named Naboth and he says, I want that field, I need to get it. So he goes to Naboth and he says, Naboth, will you sell me the field? And Naboth says, no, I will not. That is my ancestral inheritance. I'm not going to sell it to you. Ahab goes back to Jezebel and he says, woe is me, this guy Naboth won't give me his field. And Jezebel says, what are you whining about? You're the king. You can have whatever you want, Ahab. Just trust me. So they get together and they invite Naboth to a feast. They say, Naboth, you're the guest of honor at our palace. And they invite this poorer man into their home. And then they get two witnesses to testify against him and say that he has blasphemed. And then they stone him to death and they take his land. And God had condemned their idolatry, but it's actually at this point in Ahab's reign that God says, Ahab, The dogs will lick up your blood and Jezebel's blood at the place that you took Naboth's life. And that's exactly what happened. Because God takes justice seriously. God takes life seriously. And so as we evaluate the issues of the Scripture 
And as we look at our government, I think one of the dilemmas that many people have wrestled with this year is to say, okay, but what do I do if there is no leader, no candidate, no party who seems to consistently represent the values of God? What do I do if I look at the options and I go, man, they're just all bad. Well, here's what we're going to see. You do your best to exercise the limited authority God has given you, and you trust God with the results. Let me offer a few thoughts about how we approach the voting process this week. I realize many of you have already voted. Most of this will still apply. Hey, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom that God will lead you, that His Spirit will lead you as you evaluate the issues, as you go into the polling booth. Pray for wisdom for yourself. Pray for wisdom for those in this congregation, for our community, for our nation, to make wise choices. Second, consult God's Word. Bring the values of the Scripture to bear on that process and do your best even when the options are imperfect or maybe even in your view, they're all terrible. You consult God's Word and you do your best. Give grace to those who disagree. I would urge you be cautious what you post on Facebook or Twitter. Be cautious what you say publicly. Be careful that you never imply or state that the way a person votes or doesn't vote could send them to hell itself. Right? Because a person's status as a believer in Jesus Christ is not dependent upon which party they belong to or which candidate they vote for. We are Christians based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we worship one King, Jesus Christ. So we can strongly disagree. We can even say, I believe voting for a certain candidate or party is unwise. But we always recognize that there is grace for those who disagree, and we are unified under one King, Jesus Christ. And we do not hate or separate from our brothers in Jesus Christ over an earthly ruler whose reign is finite, geographically bound, and limited. So we give grace to those who disagree. We trust God with the results. Whatever happens on Tuesday, God is in control. We don't have to be fatalistic, nor do we have to panic. We trust him with the results. And then the last one may be the hardest. We submit with joy. Whoever wins, we are still called to submit to our earthly government as citizens of this earthly kingdom Unless that government directly calls us to disobey a command of Scripture, we submit with joy. Look at what Peter says in the book of 1 Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We pay our taxes, we obey the laws of the land. 
And yes, in fact, we even speak respectfully about leaders, even the ones that we disagree with, because those leaders are made in the image of God and because God controls the course of history. I was thinking about Paul standing before the rulers of the Romans and the Jews. As you get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul had to stand before the Roman governors, Festus and Felix, and then he stood before Herod Agrippa and he presented the good news of Jesus Christ. And Herod Agrippa was a bloodthirsty persecutor of the church. Herod was not a nice guy. You would not vote for the man. And yet, even in the face of that confrontation, Paul speaks to him respectfully and calls him king. And in fact, even in the face of that uh, conversation, Paul does not wish ill on Herod Agrippa. Instead, Herod says, Paul, in a short time, you'll convince me to be a Christian. And he's probably saying that tongue in cheek. And Paul, with meekness and grace, he says, oh, king, I wish that all could become as I am maybe except for these chains that you put on me. Because Paul recognizes that all men and women are extended the grace of God in Jesus Christ, even evil rulers. And so he goes into that context with respect, with humility, and shines the light of Jesus Christ while also speaking the truth. Paul is not afraid to criticize the evil of the nation's leaders, and neither are the prophets or the apostles, but they always do so with the recognition of the grace of God and the respect due those men and women. So we pay our taxes, we obey the law, and we shine the light of Jesus Christ as we do so. We don't use our freedom as a covering for evil, for bitterness, for hatred, for disobedience to the law. So we can avoid panic, we can avoid fatalism. But there's one more point I want to make this morning. Not just that God sits above our politics, not only that God cares about the government, but also God cares deeply about our everyday acts of faithfulness. If we really want to see a culture change, cultural change begins with individual lives. National change always begins at a local level. Almost every nationally elected politician was once a locally elected politician. And the issues of crime and poverty and abortion and division and sexual immorality that we see rampant in our nation did not start at the national scale and work their way down. They started in families and homes and neighborhoods and worked their way out. And so the most impactful thing you and I do this year may not be uh, providing one vote in a national election where 150 million others vote with us, but instead the most impactful thing we may do to impact our nation is to engage at a local level with the lives of men and women who are wrestling with poverty and crime and abortion and immorality. If you hope to make an impact, recognize that, yes, in Bryan College Station even, there, there is crime. There is poverty, probably not far from your home. And we have organizations 
to help alleviate that poverty that we've partnered with, that you can engage with. You can go down to the bridge or to the food bank or one of these other partner organizations and be a part of providing a solution, at least on a local level. If it breaks your heart that abortion is a national issue, We partner with organizations where they seek to intercept young pregnant women right at that most tender time when they are making a life or death decision. And these organizations seek to provide options and hope for them for the future. And there are ways you can contribute and partner with those organizations. If you care about international politics, we have opportunities to go to places like Honduras like Greece, where we can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and have an impact. In Luke chapter 10, there's a parable that almost all of you are familiar with. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus is asked by someone in his crowd, what's the greatest commandment? Remember, he says, love God first of all, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then this lawyer says, well, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this this parable, and you you remember the story. There's a a man going on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he is attacked by robbers, and he's beaten on the road, and he's lying there, left for dead. And a priest, this man of God, walks by on the other side and leaves him there because he doesn't want to become unclean due to someone else's problem. And then the Levite walks by, and he walks by on the other side of the road because he doesn't want to become unclean by engaging in someone else's problem. And then the Samaritan, who's probably a pagan, stops, and he binds up the man's wounds. He puts the man on his own animal, takes him to an inn, pays for a night, and opens a tab and says, if he needs anything else, you charge it to me. And then he goes away. And Jesus says, which one was a neighbor? And the lawyer says, "Ah, I guess the one who helped him. Now that Samaritan didn't change the crime rate between Jerusalem and Jericho. He didn't affect national statistics. All he did was say, in this moment, God has delegated me a responsibility to make a change right here. And then he had compassion. And he acted. We have opportunities to do that every single day in this community. Even after the election ends. We have opportunities to reflect the light of Jesus Christ into this community. Above all, of course, we want to be proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ. To our neighbors, to those in our community to the extent we can with the world, that Jesus died for our sin and Jesus rose again. And in his resurrection, he defeated death and sin. And all who trust in him will one day be a part of his eternal kingdom that will trump every single kingdom in the world. There won't be any more crime. There won't be any more poverty. There won't be any more death or murder. But there will be peace and safety for all who trust in Jesus. And then we bring the good news of Jesus into our community. And we also represent his character of grace and love and kindness with what we do. And that is our calling. So yes, vote. But don't allow our engagement with our world to end there. But continue to sow these seeds of the good news day after day.
I want to offer a couple of ways we can do that this morning. First of all, if you go to our website, and here's the link, grace-bible.org slash serve slash outreach, you'll see a number of opportunities, both local and global, for how you can participate in what God is doing. And it may be you have a skill set or a passion in a particular area, and you say, you know what, I'm just going to pick one organization, and that's all I got time for. And I say, that's great, pick one, and engage in some meaningful way. To shine the light of Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning, there are some men who are here. There's uh, back here Ross Boyd and a couple of other uh, young men with our global uh, ministry and local ministries. They've got a number of flyers and some information back here. There's a table on the right as you walk out the door. You can gather information about our partner ministries and how you can contribute to those ministries. I think Ryan Pale is in here with us as well somewhere. Ryan, okay, Ryan may have stepped out for just a minute, but those guys will be out in the foyer. You can talk with them on the way out about how we can have an impact for Jesus Christ in this community. We're also going to close this morning with communion. And uh, as the men begin to get ready for communion, let me offer a couple of thoughts in closing. That as we celebrate communion, we also are day after day remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ week after week until the scripture says Jesus comes back. And one of the things communion does is it orients us to the reality that for 2,000 years the people of God have gathered together in rooms like this or in homes or in large buildings or small. They've gathered together to worship Jesus Christ and acknowledge that no matter what else is going on in the world, we always look back to what Jesus did for us, that he died for our sin and he rose again and his kingdom is real and it is coming back. And so we take of the bread and the cup as a reminder that God is with us still as he has been among his church for 2,000 years, and the kingdoms of the nations will never overtake or defeat the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we remember his death, and we remember his resurrection, and then we prepare to go out into the world and proclaim the values of his kingdom. So as we prepare for communion, first and foremost, if you don't know Jesus Christ, the message of the morning is that he died for your sin and rose again so you can have eternal life in a perfect nation and kingdom that he will reign over. If you know him, as we prepare for communion, ask that as we remember what Jesus did, we will then grab onto the message of the good news and take it into a world that needs to hear of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ, the opportunity to remember this morning what he has done for us. We submit ourselves to you, despite our fear, despite 
the chaos of events around us, we submit ourselves to you and trust you that you uh, have your hands firmly on the wheel, that you're in control, uh, not only of the world and the nation, but, but of us, that, that you have our lives in your hands. And so we pray we would trust you and keep worshiping you. Father, I pray, teach us to be faithful in the small things that you've delegated to our responsibility. Father, let us be faithful by the power of your Spirit. And Father, we pray that we would trust you will preserve and stay with your people. No matter what happens this week with the election, we're trusting in you. We do pray for godly and wise leaders at every level of our government. But we also recognize, Father, that uh, ultimately uh, you are the one that plants nations and uproots nations, that sets kings in place and pulls them up. And so we bow the knee to you alone. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.